In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. The theme of the Epiphany season is manifestation. In the Gospel lessons these Sundays, we read of Jesus the Messiah, made manifest first to those Gentile magi, the wise men from the East, made manifest as the Son of God, the representative of Israel at his baptism, his mission made manifest in miracles, turning water into wine, calming the storm, casting out demons, healing the sick. So Sunday after Sunday, we see Jesus manifest as Lord and as Savior, and we see his kingdom, the kingdom that he came to inaugurate This new creation, we see it manifest, God's new world breaking into the present age. But we can't forget the epistles. We always read an epistle along with the gospel every Sunday. During the season, they're all taken from the 12th and 13th chapters of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. They've been part of the lectionary for over a millennium and a half, and they too carry the same theme of manifestation, but in a bit of a different way. In the epistles, we see the church, God's people, who manifest themselves, Jesus and his kingdom, as we live the life of the Spirit and of God's kingdom in this overlap of the ages that we're in. So think about that. In his death and resurrection, Jesus has inaugurated a new age, a new world. And he's given his people, and he's given the whole world hope. He will make all things new. He's begun it. He will finish it. But making all things new and setting God's creations to to right also means that one day there will be judgment. One day everything that opposes God One day, everything that corrupts his creation will be wiped away. We see his graciousness and his patience on display in the fact that he sent his son before the day of judgment. He sent his son into the world not to end the story, but he sent him into the middle of the story to die for the sake of his enemies to die for the sake of the very people destroying his creation, his world, making a mess of the human race. He came into the middle of the story to die for the sake of his enemies in order to make a means of redemption. So that judgment, that cleansing, that final annihilation of every bit of evil and rebellion, it will happen one day. But first, Jesus offers a way into his new world and a way out of that coming judgment. Here we see his grace and his mercy. We saw a foretaste of it in our study of Revelation as judgment fell on Jerusalem. One day the same thing will happen on a cosmic scale, but in the meantime, Jesus graciously offers an opportunity to be part of his new creation. We need only kneel in faith before him in acknowledgement that he is creation's true Lord. In return, he makes us his people, and in that, he forgives us, and he makes us new. In our baptism, he plunges us into his own spirit, and his spirit then converts on 
godly hearts that were once set on rebellion and places in them a love for God and for each other. He makes us heralds of his new creation and then sends us out with his royal summons to call men and women to repentance and to faith so that they too can have a share in his new world. But, of course, the people and the powers and all the institutions and systems that are invested in the old age, are they enthusiastic about that? They are not. Jesus warned his friends, a disciple is not greater than his master. If they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Persecution is inevitable. Opposition is inevitable whenever and wherever the old age and the new age confront each other. Paul knew this from personal experience. In fact, Paul had found himself on both sides of that clash. He knew what it was to be the persecutor, and he knew what it was to be the persecuted. He knew that it was in the meeting of the ages, this place where the world and the kingdom butt up against each other, that that Jesus' people find one of our greatest opportunities to be the very people the Spirit has made us and calls us to be. This clash is the place where Christians have profound opportunity to live the gospel, not just to preach it, but to exhibit it, to live it, to demonstrate it. And to be and to manifest God's new creation here and now. To live out the message that people deny, that they think is crazy, that they think is worthless. And to show them the truth of it. Now, I think as Western Christians, we really don't know much about persecution. People talk a lot about it. But firsthand, we don't really know persecution here. We've read stories of brothers and sisters martyred in in the days of the early church or in modern times in places like China or the Soviet Union or the Middle East. We read about missionaries like Jim Elliott who um, was murdered by the very uh, Indians whom he went to, to share Christ with. But we haven't experienced real persecution ourselves. Sometimes we face opposition or hostility or ridicule. The older I get, the more I think that an awful lot of the opposition that we face here in North America isn't so much just because we're Christians or because of the message we preach. I think a lot of the times it's because in the process of preaching that, we're jerks. We do the opposite of showing people grace. We, we proclaim a gracious message, but we don't live it out. Or we proclaim it without grace and love. But that highlights what Paul is getting at in our epistle today, in, in Romans 12, 16 to 21. We're continuing in this passage that began with Paul telling us to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. To do that, he writes, is to worship the one who has saved us. And he went on to explain what that looks like in practical terms. <clears throat> it begins with love. And last Sunday, we looked at his description of love at work in the church. How we live with and treat each other is a profound witness to the world around us. Back in the third century, Tertullian wrote about the influence the church had on the pagans. The pagans didn't comment very much on what the church taught or said. Not that we shouldn't teach or say things. But that wasn't what the pagans commented on. What the pagans commented on, Tertullian said, was how the church lived. 
in a world where mercy and grace were almost unheard of, the pagans saw Christians and were utterly astounded and said, look how they love one another. Here in the church, you and I are a microcosm of God's new creation. But Jesus doesn't intend for us to keep it to ourselves. Just as God's love spills out of us to each other, it should then spill out of the church to the world. And it often has its most profound and powerful impact when it comes up against opposition or hostility or persecution. In these verses, Paul now carries this theme of love as he leads us out of the doors of the church and back into our neighborhoods and our workplaces, to government and to our communities. Paul knew firsthand the impact the love of Jesus can have when it comes up against the world. What he writes here is not what he grew up with. What he writes here is the opposite of what characterized the Jewish world that Paul knew. As an example, we go back to the seventh chapter of 2 Maccabees, one of the historical books in the Apocrypha. It gives us an idea of the mindset that Paul was raised with, who his heroes were. We don't have time to read that this morning, but the story takes place about 160 years before Jesus was born. A group of Jews under the leadership of Mattathias Maccabeus and his son Judas rose up against their Greek rulers. The Greeks tried to suppress the faith of the Jews. In 2 Maccabees 7, we read about a woman and her seven sons who were threatened with torture in an effort to force them to eat pork. They refused, and one by one, the sons were brutally tortured and killed for their refusal to compromise. But each, in turn, as he was tortured, called down curses on the Greek soldiers and on Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek king. And those men became national heroes, not just for refusing to compromise, but mostly for having the courage to curse their enemies as they were dying. The men who rose up out of that movement, violent men, went out to overthrow the Greeks in a revolt, and they became national heroes. In fact, still in Israel today, those men are national heroes. They were heroes to Paul. And Paul saw his opposition to the church as being faithful to that very heritage. But then something changed. It might have begun as Paul stood by while Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned. Stephen preached Jesus and the Jews killed him for it. Paul held their coat so that they could get a better grip on their stones. And he heard Stephen with his dying breath call out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Just like Jesus, who was crucified but did not curse or revile in return, but prayed, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Stephen prayed for his enemies. That was unheard of. But years later, here's what Paul wrote in Romans 12. This is the end of our epistle last week. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Someone reviles you for your faith in Jesus? Bless them. Someone has your church's tax-exempt status revoked because of your witness for Jesus? Bless them. 
You're fined for refusing to compromise your faith as it relates to your business practices. Bless them. You're arrested and put in jail for proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Bless them. Bless them. Bless them. Bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Is that a hard thing to do? Like my fifth grade teacher would have said, you bet your sweet bippy. I don't know what a bippy is, but of course it's hard to do. But do it anyway. Stephen knew that it was only by the grace of God that he was any different from those people who stoned him. He knew that they needed that same grace as much as he did. If Stephen used his last breath to pray for the people who were stoning him, brothers and sisters, so can you. And Stephen's story reminds us of the key here. Stephen had his sight fixed on Jesus and the cross. Brothers and sisters, you can't revile, curse, and fight back when you have your eyes fixed on the one who gave himself up as a sacrifice for the sins of his enemies and who preached, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Epiphany reminds us of the manifestation of Jesus as Messiah, as Lord and as Savior. You and I have experienced that manifestation, and it changes everything, and we ought to manifest the life he's given us. And it's not just blessing people who would persecute us for our faith. We are going to face hostility everywhere we turn in the world. The old age is filled with sin and corruption. Our interactions are tainted with it every day. But instead of seeing this as an opportunity to get even with people or to get back at people, as people of God's new creation, you and I should look at our life in the midst of the world as a means of lifting the veil on God's new creation. I mean, that's what we hope for. That's what we long for. That's what we look for. Lift the veil and show other people so that they can see it too. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Don't be a crank. When something good happens to your pagan neighbor... Be happy for him. When he throws a party to celebrate something, go and celebrate with him. When Veronica's brother got married, he got married by a druid priestess with a druid Wiccan ceremony. We could have been grumps. We weren't happy about the pagan stuff. But the fact is that marriage was instituted by God. Marriage is a good thing, even when the pagans do it. That's what men and women are supposed to do. It's a joyful time. We went. We we politely declined the smudging and stood outside of the sacred circle drawn by the priestess, and we didn't take part in the pagan rituals, but we could still be there and rejoice with them in their marriage. Don't be a grump. The flip side of this is that we ought to weep with our neighbors or with the world when it weeps. Some Christians are really, really, really good at schadenfreude. They sit and they smirk every time something bad happens to unbelievers. Brothers and sisters, don't be like that either. It's self-righteous to be like that. Bad things happen because we, all of us, every human being who has ever lived, all of us have sinned and contributed 
to the corruption of our world. Sometimes we suffer as the consequences of our own personal sins. An awful lot of the time we simply suffer the cumulative consequences of thousands and thousands of years of sins committed corporately by our entire race. The problems of this world can be laid at our feet, each of us, as much as they can be laid at anyone else's. We've all contributed, and none of us has any business gloating at the misfortune of a fellow human being. But remember, too, that you and I are privileged to be stewards of the answer to human suffering. In Jesus and the Spirit, we have caught a glimpse of the world set to rights. God in his grace and mercy saw fit to reach each of us with the good news about Jesus. We ought to show that same grace and mercy to others who suffer. Not gloating, but we should take the good news about Jesus to them in the midst of suffering. In fact, even though the world around us is hostile to the good news, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. We'll see in next week's epistle. He tells us, don't be troublemakers. Trouble will find you, but don't go making it where it doesn't exist. Be peaceable people. The Greek literally says here, thinking the same things towards one another. And the sense is that Paul is calling us to live alongside our neighbors, to share life with them. We Christians are prone to withdrawing from our non-Christian neighbors. I mean, we may not go off and form literal, literal ghettos where we all live in the same place apart from everyone else, although there are some Christian groups who have done that. But I think our failure tends to be that we minimize our association with non-believers. And that's particularly true for those of us who have been raised in the church. We isolate ourselves from people who aren't in Christ, and then we wonder where all the opportunities for evangelism have gone. It's good to ask yourself, particularly if you've been a Christian for a long time, have I isolated myself from non-Christians? Because if we have, where will the opportunities to share Christ be? And Paul goes on and says, don't be snobs. Instead, associate with the lowly. We see this lived out very dramatically in the church of Paul's days. Slaves and free people. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves and free people didn't mix. And yet in the church, they came together. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. Read Philemon this week. Paul's letter to Philemon. Wonderful letter on this subject. Paul, when he wrote this, no doubt had in mind the tensions that there were between Jewish and Gentile Christians in the Roman churches. Those may not be the sorts of divisions that we're prone to being snobbish about today, but they make the point that the love of Jesus has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit, and it crosses every boundary. And then verses 17 and 18, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Responding in kind to someone's evil, that's the way of the fallen human heart. It's our most natural response, but the Christian is different. Again, the Spirit has removed our hearts of stone and in their places has filled us with a love for God and a love for each other. 
It's a most basic and fundamental characteristic of the Christian, which is why Paul beats this drum so often. He says almost exactly the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5. Love does not seek revenge. Love seeks the best, even for our enemies. If you struggle with that, and we all do, if you struggle with that, remember again the cross. We rejected God. We sinned. We sundered heaven and earth. We corrupted God's creation. But instead of repaying our evil with more evil, God sent his son to forgive and to reconcile and to restore. Why? Because he loves us. Think on the cross. Meditate on the cross. Keep the cross always at the center of your vision and love will become easier and more natural. Perhaps I say that speculatively because I still work on that. I think we all do. But if we keep the cross at the center of our vision, we will love more naturally. Because of love and our desire to live out the good news and to manifest God's new, new age in the midst of the world, we will always be thinking about how to do good. Keep the cross at the center, and you will more and more be focused on how to do good. Paul knew that sometimes doing good and manifesting the kingdom will bring the scorn of the world. It took Jesus to the cross. But he also knew that it's possible to live at peace with our neighbors. There are times when our integrity and refusal to compromise might lose us our friends. It might get us fired from our jobs. It might cause government persecution. But we still rejoice with our joyful neighbors and weep with our weeping neighbors. What comes to my mind as I read these words is that Paul understands that we will face the opposition of the world, but we should respond to that by being squeaky clean. We should be living in such a way that when we do face opposition or persecution, it should truly be for the sake of Jesus and only for the sake of Jesus. I think that's something we modern Christians need desperately to hear. Because we have a tendency to be horribly self-righteous and sometimes real jerks about it. And sometimes we do so in the name of Jesus. We can be horrible snobs in the name of Jesus. We can be terrible cranks in the name of Jesus. We often gloat at the suffering of unbelievers, particularly those who maybe have actively opposed us, and we gloat in the name of Jesus. We can be horrible, self-righteous hypocrites in the name of Jesus. And we too often seek our own welfare, often doing so in the name of Jesus through associations with ungodliness and ungodly people. Politics and materialism and consumerism have corrupted our gospel perspective and often compromise our witness. We grasp for power. We grasp for things. We live for ourselves, forgetting our Lord, who, as Paul writes in Philippians, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And then Paul says, have that mind. Let that mindset characterize you as his people. People call us haters and bigots because we refuse to bow to the sinful sexual ethics of the day or to the identity politics of postmodernism. Brothers and sisters, our refusal to compromise will bring opposition, but we need to be sure that the opposition is truly for the sake of our commitment to Jesus and to the real love that Paul describes here. If the world is going to call us haters, we need to truly be people of love at heart. We need to be the most loving people on the planet, as we should be, even if the world doesn't fully understand what a godly love looks like. The people who are going to call us bigots and haters for the sake of their false gods need to see us rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, showing mercy and grace. They should never see us thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. To the the contrary, even if they've suppressed it in the backs of their minds and seared their own consciences, that their accusations are utterly false. It should be obvious to all. This was the witness of the first Christians, many of whom were martyred for standing up to the gods and kings of their age, but who, by their loving, their giving, their mercy, and their grace, and their humble witness, even through their deaths, turned an empire to Jesus. And then, brothers and sisters, Paul gives us a somber warning in verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For so it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That isn't always an easy thing to do, is it? But again, look to the cross. God's people are loved by him. That God would give his son for our sake is the proof. We're Christians because we trust in God and his goodness and his wisdom seen first and foremost in his provision for forgiveness and renewal through Jesus. His amazing grace that saved us when we were wretches. Brothers and sisters, we know that God is good. We know that God takes care of us. We know that God will set all things to right in the end and that his justice will prevail. So we don't need to take justice into our own hands by seeking vengeance. To do that is only to perpetuate the very cycle of evil that Jesus died to end. Have you ever considered that your faith is witness to others when you choose to trust in God to deal with your enemies? Think about that the next time you're tempted to repay evil with evil. And then Paul goes on in verses 20 and 21. He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Instead of cursing our enemies, we need to devote ourselves, as Jesus said, to praying for them, to seeking ways to do good to those who persecute us. Paul's quoting Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. Don't just leave it at not taking vengeance on your enemy. Oftentimes we think, it's good enough. I wanted to punch that guy, but I walked away. Think of ways to actively do good for him or for her. her. And that goes along with being squeaky clean. 
manifest the love of God to your enemy. There's, there's some disagreement about exactly what Paul means by heaping coals on his head, but Paul's point seems to be this. First, doing good to your enemies, it's the right thing to do because it models the gracious love that God has shown us in Jesus. Never forget that we were once God's enemies. Second, vengeance is God's prerogative, and we need to trust in him in these situations. And finally, third, Paul's thinking that even if it's a long shot, loving our enemies may bring them to repentance. Again, that might seem like a stretch, but Paul knew this firsthand. There is no one that God's grace cannot reach. Remember Stephen. Paul stood there holding coats for the stone throwers. He heard Stephen's prayers for his enemies. Paul didn't change his mind about Jesus that day, but Stephen's witness stayed with him and was part of a long sequence of events that would eventually bring Paul to Jesus. Paul really knew how evil is overcome not with more evil, but with good. He'd seen it in his own experience, but he understood it first and foremost because of the cross of Jesus. Paul understood the way in which violence compounds violence and evil compounds evil just as we do. Someone hits you, and you hit back harder, and the violence spirals. It's in our fallen nature, and it has been from the beginning. Paul knew that story from Genesis 4 of the man named Lamech who boasted that a man hit him, so he retaliated by murdering the man. The world's been spiraling into greater violence ever since. Evil begets more evil. But brothers and sisters, Jesus stepped into history to break that cycle. Evil concentrated itself all in one place. It rose up to its full height And it did its absolute worst at the cross. Peter drew his sword. But Jesus knew that evil begets evil. That those who live by the sword die by the sword. Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. And then he allowed himself to be led to the cross. Jesus allowed evil to do its worst. And in doing so, he broke the cycle He returned death with life and evil with love. And brothers and sisters, now he's filled us by his spirit with that same love and calls us to break the cycle wherever we find ourselves in it. It's not a question of if, but when. The spiral of evil finds us every day, even if only in small ways. How do we respond How do we manifest Jesus and his kingdom in those situations? Brothers and sisters, think on that. And focus your eyes on Jesus and his cross. Mediate and manifest his love. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, mercifully look upon our infirmities and in all our dangers and necessities, stretch out your right hand to help and defend us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.